Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge and stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site of resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You are listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sara Khan. Today on the show, we are going to be joined by Sim Chuang Han. They are a self-taught multidisciplinary artist and curator, DJ, and you've probably heard them as the host of Thursday Lunch. But what you might not know is that they recently wrote an anthropology thesis entitled Food as Practice, Navigations of Chinese Diasporic Identity Through Food Making and Sharing. This work explores the Chinese diaspora and the role of food in the process of reconnecting and reconstructing individual and collective identities and forging solidarity. Through their work, we learn how food takes on meaning beyond nourishment to signify movement, pleasure, connection and emotion as racialized peoples. Sim's work is rich with emotion, story and taste, so we we are so excited to have them in the studio to have them speak to it. We're joined in the studio by artist, uh, curator, DJ, and resident radio host here at FBI Radio, Sim Chuang Huan. Uh, they recently wrote an anthropology thesis called Food as Practice, Navigation of Chinese Diasporic Identity Through Food Making and Sharing. We have them here with us to talk food, obviously, um, how we conceive of the diaspora within academia and within wider spaces as well. And I also want to know what their transportive meals are but we'll get to that a bit later give them some time to think about it but sim thank you so much for joining us thank you i'm so shy after (laughs) after that bio i'm like i know i like gave that to you but i also like okay hey it's weird to hear things that you've done presented back at you sometimes Mm, i'm so vulnerable but main character (laughs) own it own Um, it yeah um, I want to start with the food of your um, Chinese diaspora heritage, how it becomes a form of cultural communication and solidarity. Can you tell us a bit about the journey of writing your thesis? Yeah, I think it like definitely was grounded in a lot of obsessive thought around food that was informed by my family upbringing, both sides. My dad is Lao, my mum is Chinese, and they're both very into food and food was a way of connecting with each other and a way of connecting with their family and so 
yeah, like the banquet meals, but also like the daily shared meals was something that was always a thing. And I think I clung on to that to a point of always thinking about food in some capacity. And then when I yeah thought of writing a thesis, I didn't know any other space to look at. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was just an opportunity to find to explore my own experiences, but hopefully find connections elsewhere with other people through interviews. And so as an act of solidarity, I guess. That notion of your parents connecting with each other through food or, um, you know, through the banquet, is that something that you realized early on? Like, was that something you noticed as a child or is it something you kind of learned gradually? Yeah, I think food was definitely something that was relayed to me as something very important or something to focus on from a very early age. I remember seeing, like at Christmas, my cousins would gift specialty sea salts that were like charcoal flavored and like cookbooks and whatnot. So like, even though that was like removed from like a very distinctly Chinese or distinctly Lao experience, it was like food is something that is exciting and something to play with. so that was something that I picked up on quite early. I don't think it was forced upon me. Like I wasn't forced into the kitchen to cook. Um, they just loved flavor and that came through in the way that we ate. And yeah, I picked up on that. Mm. I tasted that. I love that. Cause I think about like my parents as well and how my mother married into dad's side and that was the way that she connected with his family and his heritage was by um, being in the kitchens in um, Pakistan and Sogorda when um, she was like in her like early, early 20s. And that was how she learned dad's language as well. That's how she learned how to speak Urdu because she was like, I need to know what they're talking about. I need to know what they're saying about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and also she was like such a, she was like such on the outskirts as well because she was, you know, not only um, someone that wasn't from their culture that married in, which was a huge deal back then, but she also came from her own cultural roots and lineage as well as an Indigenous woman, as a black woman here. And so that was the way that she kind of, like forged her way into that household was through food and that's how she kind of established relationships with everyone in his family in dad's family as well they all talk about it today still about like you know jenny bubby in the kitchen like when she was 21 and what we all talked about like it was such a big big deal there so yeah hearing you talk about all of that it's like all of those types of memories and um me listening to their memories be spoken back to me like it all like you, you don't realize how um important and how how central food is for us too. Um, And you began writing your work, I guess, within the rise of the anti-East Asian sentiment amid COVID-19. Why was it important to write about the link between food and in particular racialized communities? Right on the backs of our families and ancestors and each other for each other. So Yeah, the connection between food and politics, I think, is very clear. And yeah, food is such a political thing. And yeah, thinking of the ways that I grew up and it's like relevant to, I think, a lot of little diasporic babies. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's an an ongoing reality no matter what generation uh, you you come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think I drew a lot of inspiration from a lot of different bodies that I was seeing in both like the US and also Australia that 
also brought that connection to light, um, such as there's a Instagram account called The God of Cookery, and they have a zine that they made called Chinese Protest Recipes. And basically it has, it's a collation of recipes from their childhood relayed in a way that's like oral history-esque, like they don't have any measurements. So mm. like, just mm. like measure things with your tongue, with your like, with your brain, just like think. And it's like mm. very, um, it's very blunt with their messaging because it, like some of the recipes are called like ACAB fried rice. Right. Or like, <laughs> Uh, so it's like no question what it's arguing for yeah, and yeah. all of the funds to that zine go towards the Black Lives Matter movement. This mm. was maybe two years ago. Um, and there's a similar body here, um, kind of more newly established called Soul of Chinatown um, that, yeah, wanted to bring this sense of Asian pride and connection to Chinatown as something to hold on to as a place of community, as a place of history. Um, and yeah, I think seeing all of these bodies and cogs working with each other and for each other, I think it was something that I wanted to contribute to in some way through mm. writing. Food as protest is such an interesting mm. concept because mm. it really is such a like physical thing to engage with food the act of cooking food the act of eating food is such a unique and culturally specific thing and it's such a personal thing too like mm. you translate um feeling and emotion um through food um but it's it's interesting because it's like it's always a positive thing unless you're a bad cook like it's going to be a good <laughs> meal and you're going to be nourished and you're going to be fed yeah. whether you're cooking from grief or you're cooking from anger mm. or you're cooking from um, you know, joy or solidarity, the end goal is nourishment. Mm. And I guess, you know, a, a lot of the ideas of what we talk about here on the show uh, are like nourishment and care and resilience as protest. Mm. And it's interesting to hear a food thought about that way. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Yeah, food is definitely a way of like caregiving. Mm. Um, but on the flip side, to give nuance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please, um, we love her. We love I nuance. I think um, food can also like especially through speaking to a lot of um, people and reflecting on my own experiences, thinking a lot about food is also a burden in mm, a way mm -hmm. because it is so political and it is it does carry this weight to it. It's just like another thing that I find myself thinking about maybe too much or not too much, but it just it, there is that weight to it, which is also beautiful. So I guess there's a lot of contradiction in what yeah. I'm saying here. Do you mean like burden as in like a responsibility to honour like food or as in like a burden as in it's a necessity of life? I guess both, both yeah. ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean like outside of the racialized space, the pressure of... Um, I guess, it, no, I guess it is in the racialized yeah, space. Yeah. Like the pressures of thinness and whiteness that are like are pressured, are put on a lot of like younger people. Mm. How does that fit within the frames of also eating like your family if that's like not, if it doesn't seem as like clearly conducive? Yeah, it's that also that thing as well, I guess, of like, you know, when food becomes... Um, 
what we know of as well with where it becomes gentrified and now suddenly mm. as you get into your adult years you start to see how you know it was kind of used as something to be used racialized against you but now it's also something to appropriate mm. from you yeah, it's, and, it's like cultural um, capital yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah there's this idea of um the burden of representation yeah. and like yeah that di- idea mm. definitely plays into it one of my friends who started who worked a lot with like food and art they yeah felt that pressure of like I am an Asian femme presenting person this is the expectation that I will connect to my culture through food Mm -hmm. and then that through unpacking it internally and with conversations with others they're like actually I don't really want to talk about this or share this with people but that pressure is still Mm -hmm. felt yeah Mm. yeah let me eat. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Let me eat. I just, I'm just here to eat. Um, Sim, your work is steeped in a lot of your family's autobiography. Um, we learn about your parents' migration stories to this country and how their food practices um, map out their relationship to each other and to their heritage. How did you begin to translate um, these personal stories into an academic context and um, and at the same time, you know, take care of those stories? Mm, yeah, it was... Um really important for me to have this as a form of storytelling. I think there's a lot of pressure that I felt stepping into academia um, of being like a like quite clinical, like removed from the situation. I was warned maybe to like not write about something, not write about something so personal. Um, But I think that personal element was really important to me as a way of caregiving to these stories and communities um, or people that I spoke to, rather. Um, Yeah, I I shared my thesis with my mum after and she was like, I I didn't even know... I didn't know you were watching me at this moment. (laughs) And so um, maybe the ethics of that, (laughs) maybe should have disclosed that. But um, yeah, I think I respect, tried to unpack these stories as respectfully as possible and um, give light to a lot of experiences that I feel like are shared or like that people can resonate with, um, but don't get a lot of light as well. Were you surprised by anything that emerged in talking to your family and others about food practices and identities? Mm, Yeah, I was surprised to find out that my parents didn't think about food as much as I did um, and and as I thought they did. I think because they were so influential in my experiences and, and the formation of like my interest in this, I just assumed that there would be that layer of like connection there, but mm. they were just like, oh, I don't really think about it or it was just... But I think that also makes sense as like food was just a thing to eat um, and that obsessive thought just maybe comes from the like the privilege of academia mm. um, and yeah, giving having the space to think about it in the way that I did. Um, I think I was also surprised to see what connections there were between all of the different stories. Um, some of them were like... I guess a bit more predictable isn't the word, but like I expected those connections, but other ones like the ways that people used food as a 
means of excluding themselves mm-hmm. um, was like a surprising, I guess, unfortunate finding. Um, but like other more lovely ones, like how porridge and chook is like a way of, um, was a means of caring for sickness given by like their parents when they were sick that like kind of came up in everyone's stories in some capacity so yeah a lot of like trends that were surprising and others a bit more predictable Sim, you spoke about how your experience of diaspora can be mapped out through flavour likened to a multi-dish banquet. What are some food memories that formed part of your writing? Oh, so many. There's so many. What are some of them? I think with family, definitely, yeah, the banquet meal and, like, the image of, like, the cart and, like, the pecking duck coming out as a sign of celebration um, and how that kind of morphed several years after as I decided to go vegan or vegetarian to me still getting a pancake with just hoisin and cucumbers. (laughs) (laughs) I think that like that change that like the first day that happened um, sticks with me. It's like, oh, I'm actually like removing myself from this experience that I like loved and cherished. So that's one. I think also, I remember, so on my Laos side, my grandma used to take care of me um, growing up and I would always like just stick around with her in the kitchen and she spoke Lao. I didn't, I still don't really speak Laos, um, but she would just feed me all of these things such as like, old sticky rice with like eggs and like just rice with tomato sauce which sounds like whatever but it's also like a part of my memory that is really warming um and just those flavors are like evoke that like warmth I guess um food memories I don't know. Can you help me? Can you think of You just any? said food with your <laughs> food. Sorry. You just said rice with tomato sauce, which just triggered me. And I was like, oh my God, I ate that too. I, I also <laughs> ate that. Yeah. And like At maybe a fried egg on it as well. Yeah. Elevated. Yeah, elevated. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, is that like a collective, like South um, Asian? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tomato. Well, tomato, tomato rice, rice is a thing. Yeah. yeah. Tomato rice, but like tomato sauce. <laughs> Yeah, With I rice, guess that's yeah. diaspora going yeah. from tomatoes <laughs> to tomato sauce. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was eight with my family up till maybe year eleven ish, and then I started dabbling in like vegetarianism, and then quickly veganism as like a means of control. I think. I think a little bit of the yeah young person growing up, but also as a internalized racism kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have like very distinct memories of like being told that my house smelled like something, um, or being told that like yeah the strangeness of the things that I 
brought to school or whatnot. Um, so I, for a mixture of several reasons, decided to become vegetarian and then vegan. And at the start, my family was a bit like, oh, she, this is a phase. We're going to just like leave them be. We're going to just eat how we eat. They can make what they want to make. And then I cultivated a list of recipes from what was then the high carb, low fat movement that was pioneered by a lot of like health and quotation marks, health bloggers who ate like 30 bananas a day and looked like stunning and were predominantly white. Um, And I, yeah, subscribed to that idea as a really impressionable young person. And I think out of maybe definitely concern from my parents, it quickly shifted from they can do this to like, oh, they actually are sticking to this. Okay, we're going to like accommodate and try and cook dishes that we would make, but make them vegetarian and then vegan. So yeah, a lot of care still through food, even though I removed, I consciously removed myself, they still found a way to make food a means of care. Um, And yeah, that like translated to at the banquet table, we'd order everything that would be ordered um, normally. So this menu that would be never changing every time we'd go to like a banquet place. But now with the addition of like two vegetarian dishes, so I could like still be satiated. And this continued for like six-ish years. So quite recently, I think at this, or maybe either at the start of writing the thesis or mid-writing the thesis, then I like, I think I couldn't not. Um, I felt a bit, this is not a diss on veganism and vegetarianism, <laughs> by the way. Um, you do, I also still cook a lot of, why am I defending myself? I think like as I was writing and as I was like speaking to people and as I was, unpacking my own brain and reflecting on like the toxicity that was the reason for me stepping into veganism and vegetarianism um I couldn't help but think of the ways of like amending that like ways of excluding that I had brought upon myself through that way of eating so can you describe your relationship to the idea of diaspora and community right now Yeah, I think I, especially after speaking to a lot of people, I think diaspora, there comes this kind of baseline understanding of the nuances or like that, or just even the understanding that there is nuance to our experience. It's not necessarily we have to have the same experience for us to connect. It's just that we know that our experiences are varied, hence why we find comfort and home in connecting with others of diaspora. Um, I think, yeah, it's a term that I didn't really know until I started, like, until until I stepped into, like, studying and, like, to the academic world, which I think is interesting that, like, I had to that that space, which is like shrouded with a lot of privilege, was the one that would introduce me to this term that 
has so much color and flavor to it. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Did you write that? <laughs> Up in here, baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, t- I totally understand that. Like, there's so many things that I think about from the academic space, like in my year spent there as well, where I'm like, oh, like I hated it, but mm. also there are certain words that I've taken from it. You, I feel like you get to a place where you're like, that place functions, but I'm going to now steal from it. Mm. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think like some of the people that I um, interviewed, like didn't know what the mm. term was and like, as I like shared my understanding of it, they like were like, oh, okay. But it doesn't like, it doesn't make their experience like disingenuous mm. just because they don't know the word. Um, yeah. the So like knowledge is power, but also we can, that's the beauty of diaspora. We can teach each other these terms and have this space to like have these conversations that aren't like um, plagued with, academia yeah Yeah. and also removing the i guess the gatekeeping Mm. of said language as well because that's exactly what you said like it's um just because you don't have a word for it doesn't mean you're not experiencing it Mm. yeah 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 i have such a i'm not a complex relationship with the word diaspora but um i feel like as i get older my relationship with the word or with the concept of diaspora changes in the same way that my connection, my relationship with my, um, you know, Filipino heritage changes all the time as well. Um, I don't know what it is about recently, but I've been seeing a lot of like, quote unquote, discourse on the internet about like diaspora and diasporic art and like how you're always going to be like a diasporic baby with your little diasporic baby art, which is about like, you know, like about you know wistful um representations of like home and the motherland Mm. um whereas you would compare it with art or you know um expressions of art from the motherland which is vastly different or like you know just a different just a different kind of context which is completely valid and it's like why i don't understand well it's taken me a while to understand why people knock that when every generation um be first second third fourth that moves away from the homeland and is diaspora or diasporic will experience that feeling of like disconnection and then recontextualizing and reconnecting through art like that Mm. and it's yeah as you said it's nuanced and it's like some people are further along on that journey than other people some people will skip that journey and like find a means to connect in a different way but some people will find other ways and i'm always trying to navigate like what is like you know like what's a cliche or what's just actual lived experience mm. like who is this for like who is responding to this and why um yeah it's just like an ongoing kind of conversation with myself yeah i feel like if anything that's the one thing that's consistent in yeah being of dias or being someone of diasporic diasporic I know experience. every time yeah yeah um that there is that conflict and mm. you, yeah I think whether the conventions change yeah mm. to think a bit more conceptually <laughs> and in a fun way creatively maybe if your writing could be turned into a recipe or a banquet what would we be feasting on <laughs> <laughs> oh. um like I'm just, I hate that this was the first image that came into my brain. I just like thought of like that scene in Elf, like with the spaghetti and like the different 
sweet. It's like the chocolate sauce. And okay, like the... admittedly, I haven't seen Elf. Oh, wait. I have, but wait. years ago. Oh, I'm so glad. It... Are you talking I mean... about the Will Ferrell Yeah, elf? Will Ferrell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, again, I have no idea why this is the first The image. Elf diaspora? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Solidarity. 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 Um, elf spaghetti. <laughs> they are Googling it right now. No, I, I think I remember it. Yeah, so it's like... Do you know... I mean, is this a spoiler? No, no I mean, the movie's like 20 <laughs> years old. <isn't> <laughs> um, so they're like making spaghetti for their their family and they put like maple syrup and um, like marshmallows and lollies, said image, insert here. Oh my God. <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> Why? So this is your writing so practice. This is my practice. In, yeah. This is the, I get it. I am here for it. Will Ferrell is, is scooping spaghetti up with his hands, um, shoveling it into his little no, elf mouth. The color? Yeah. There's color. There's lots color. of colors. There's flavor. Spaghetti of color. A mixture of flavor. Um, yeah. Maple syrup. Yeah. A clash of flavor. It's like a um, harmony day. Attire um, necessary. Harmony. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so for our listeners right dress. now, Sim is showing us um, a picture of Will yeah. Farrell eating spaghetti <sighs> with a like plethora of sweet condiments dressed in his elf getup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was the questioning? <laughs> no, no, I won't be giving it to you again. That's that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> commit, commit, commit. Yeah. That's that's when it's most pure, the first image that comes to your head. Yeah, I was so confused by this answer for me. Um, <laughs> did you ask if this was what my... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, if, you're, if, you're like, if your writing could be turned into a recipe, that's you. <laughs> that's your answer. Yeah. I mean, that's you can stick answer. by that no, if you want. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think I have yeah. to commit to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, actually, yes. Um, it... I think it was a very conscious choice of me trying to pivot serious answer. No, from totally. That. Yeah, yeah. So serious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I made, as I was saying before, I thought that like academia, I feel sometimes or a lot of the time can be quite removed um, and quite isolating, um, even if it is writing about culture like in the anthropology space. Um, not all anthropologists, there's a lot of like lovely writers as well, but um, I really wanted to make a piece of writing that was also accessible to people outside of the academic space, um, which I guess the spaghetti represents. Um, and I took a lot of inspiration from a movement in um, academic writing called autoethnography, which um, kind of put places focus on like personal storytelling and experiences, but also weaving in together like traditional ethnographic academic research and writing styles. Um, and so the writing goes from really like heavy kind of heavy um, literature reviews to then um, setting the scene of like the table being made or um, 
someone's experience and then going into like some theory that had been established 30 years ago and then like personal reflection so it is yeah it is I guess this spaghetti um it's a hodgepodge of things but at least to someone it works but there is one question that we ask um all of our guests um who come through the show to wrap up um uh, our chat and sim that is when did you realize there was power in your race oh I think through, uh, definitely through writing this, like really affirmed that idea for me. And I don't think I can really locate a moment, um, which I will have to revisit that in my own time. But through, definitely through writing this and through speaking with people and through finding community through this process, Um, if not definitely before, definitely then. Mm. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Sim, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and your insight and your elf knowledge. Um, It's been really lovely to have you in the studio. Yeah, Um, your absolute wit. Thank you so much. Thank you so much Um, for having me. We mentioned all your hats before, artist, curator, DJ, radio host. Is there anything from you that we can look forward to seeing, hearing, experiencing? Yeah. um, Some writing that will be coming out that is not from this thesis that I've rinsed um, and also some DJ sets um, randomly uh, or you can hear me on yeah. Thursday lunch <laughs> <laughs> on FBI Race Matters Race Matters Race Matters Race Matters Race Matters Race Matters Race Matters, Race matters.